Okay, welcome. Thanks very much for coming. My name is Mike Savage. I'm a professor of sociology here at the LSC and uh, one of the co-directors of the International <coughs> Equalities Institute. We're very pleased to be hosting today's uh, lecture. Um, and I'll say a few words uh, to introduce uh, Michelle Lamont. I think most people here will be familiar with her. But Michelle is a professor of sociology and African-American studies and the Robert L. Goldman Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. Uh, this year she is serving as President of the American Sociological Association. Uh, she's one of the most uh, famous sociologists in the world and I will personally single out four features of her work which have made a big impression on me and I think have made a profound impression on the discipline. I suspect we'll see many of these four features uh, in today's talk. Um, I think Michelle is really at the forefront of thinking seriously about how we bring issues of culture into the study of inequality. This is an area, speaking as a co-director of the II, I know all about this, it's an area where economists are at the forefront, quite understandably, but looking at issues of culture and taking questions of cultural boundaries and making them a key part of the story is, I think, a central feature. I think what marks out Michelle's work is that... Um, the study of culture is often bound up with quite iconoclastic or theoreticist views, um, whether it's from uh, followers of Pierre Bourdieu, with whom Michelle has an interesting history, which she's written about, um, or you know, theoreticist positions in cultural studies. But Michelle's approach is very grounded, uh, and it's very much looking at um, thinking about culture empirically. And I think, as again we'll see today, with questions of intersectionality, class, uh, race, gender, age, nationality, all part of the mix. I think a second key feature of her work, which is um, very, very important, and again appeals to me as someone who's one of the directors of the, of the IAI, is, that, is the belief that sociologists need to be interdisciplinary. We need to be talking to people outside our discipline, um, and we need to be working collectively in the social sciences. In her case, she's been leading um, for 15 years very important program of work called Successful Societies, funded by uh, Canadian research institutes, and has, that has generated a number of really important books thinking about the impact of neoliberalism uh, and issues of resilience, which have actually got people working across different social science disciplines. So it's a very impressive uh, effort, and it shows that Michelle is a fantastic team builder and a colleague. Thirdly, and this is something which we were talking about with the master's students last night. I think one of Michelle's major contributions is to, is to take seriously doing qualitative analysis seriously and rigorously. So uh, Michelle champions uh, an approach to qualitative methods which involves uh, many interviews, serious coding, serious analysis of text rather than a more vignette-based approach. And I think... When we're thinking about making sure our work as qualitative sociologists gets out there, I think it's really, really important to show that the methods we use um, are rigorous. And I think, you know, it also shows the fantastic uh, I think work rate. I mean, some of, some of the, the number of interviews Michelle has done in her life uh, is, must be well into four figures, I, I guess. Uh, and finally, and, uh, you know, it's an obvious point, and it's the point which comes out of the title of this talk, but uh, Michelle is a profound comparativist um, in that she, much of her work has, has focused upon comparing cultural boundaries in different nations and in different contexts. That goes right back to one of her, 
first book where she was comparing um, the middle classes in France and America, and her more recent work, which is comparing US, Brazil, and Israel, and lots of other issues around that too. And I think that's really, really important. I mean, uh, having spent time working in the US, there can be a tendency in the US to see the US as a kind of goldfish bowl and not much else beyond it. And I think Michelle, you know, particularly acting as president of the ASA, is really pushing the need for compa- serious comparative analysis. Um, so these are four areas where she's made a huge contribution to the discipline of sociology. Um, it's fantastic to have her here um, with this title about getting respect, responding to stigma and discrimination in the US, Brazil, and Israel. But before she begins, we're going to have a short um, interlude, and I'm going to welcome up to the stage Shanti Van Dam, who is director of the Erasmus Prize Foundation, to say a few words. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, let's see if I can get some pictures on here. Um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to Professor Savage for allowing me to take um, a few short moments to add even more luster to um, the speaker of today. Um, we have come here to listen to Professor Michelle Lamont and bear with me as I will explain how my presence here this, this evening has everything to do with her important work. Um, my name is Shanti van Dam. I'm the director of the Erasmus Prize, which is based in Holland. And the Erasmus Prize is awarded annually to a person or <coughs> institution that has made an exceptional contribution to the humanities, the social sciences, or the arts in Europe and beyond, emphasizing Erasmian values, as we call them, tolerance, cultural pluriformity and non-dogmatic critical thinking. Um, The foundation endeavors to express these values in the choice of its laureates. And His Majesty the Dutch King is the patron of this foundation. Um, Let's see. Um, Let me give you a real, real short um, um, story about this foundation. In 1958... His Royal Highness, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, founded the Erasmus Prize to serve as a sort of a counterpart to the Nobel Prize, um, but this time focused um, exclusively on the humanities and the arts. Um, And it was conceived in a time of great optimism about the possibilities of a new Europe um, after the devastation of uh, the two world wars. We'll let that... um, later. Um, um, The prize is one of the biggest, I I think actually it's the biggest um, cultural prize of Europe and it constitutes a cash prize of 150,000 euros and um, it derives its name from the famous humanist and scholar, the serious Erasmus. You see his statue up the screen um, and let me quickly walk you through some of the previous laureates. This is the oldest one, actually. 1959, Charlie Chaplin, of course, the famous movie maker. Um, just a few more, Václav Havel, um, Simon Wiesenthal, um, 
the wonderful sociologist um, Fatima Manissi, um, Martin Buber. Um, this is our king with two um, legal brains, Cassese and Ferenc. Mary Robinson, you all know, I'm sure. Wikipedia in 2014, sometimes this prize go to a, goes to an institution. Um, actually, this was for all the um, um, people working around the world on Wikipedia as volunteers. And um, last but not least, your very own Dame Antonia Susan Byatt in 2016. And um, um, the board of the foundation determines well, well in advance the area in which um, the Erasmus Prize will be awarded. This year, the team of the prize was named Knowledge, Power, and Diversity and was designated to go to someone from the social sciences. And yet... Here she is, the laureate, you saw this coming, um, of the Erasmus Prize 2017, awarded to the cultural sociologist Michelle Lamont. Um, she will receive the prize from the hands of the Dutch king coming November in the palace in Amsterdam, and I would like to congratulate her again, uh, this time not through the phone as we did earlier. Um, <laughs> And for those of you in the audience who are interested in all the activities that we will be organizing in the fall around the team of um, diversity and who want to see more of Michel Lamont, please go to our website and join our newsletter and you will be able to follow everything from there. I wish you a very pleasant evening with Michel Lamont. Thank you so much, Antti, for this uh, short presentation. Of course, as you would all imagine, receiving a prize like this makes me feel like I better get seriously at work. I don't feel like, you know, if you read the list of recipients, they are the people who've made 20th century social science, ranging from Habermas to Piaget to Raymond Aron. So I feel I need to start getting up earlier and earlier to feel like I actually inhabit this role. It's a little bit like the king's two bodies, you know. I'm not there yet. So um, I want to also thank Mike uh, Savage for his wonderful introduction and for hosting me today. Uh, I'd got my uh, graduate, uh, my, my uh, doctorat in the, in, at the University de la Sorbonne. Therefore, I have this old fetishism for these kind of amphitheater, to me, they feel real. So it's, all, it's a real pleasure to, to be lecturing here in this August institution. Um, as you can see, I have a very serious cold, but I have pasty and I have water, so hopefully I'll get through it. And uh, so I'm going to talk to you about this book, Getting Respect, uh, which came out last October. It's a co-authored book, uh, which was written by three teams, a, uh, an American team, Jessica Welburn and myself, an Israeli team, Josh Gotzkow, Anna Herzog, and Nisim Mizrahi, and a Brazilian team, uh, Graziela Silva de Moraes, and uh, 
uh, Elisa Reich, and it's a project that started in 2005. We met uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with the idea of doing a book on how nor ordinary people who are uh, members of variously stigmatized groups go about understanding their everyday experience and responding to it. A lot of my previous books had been on the drawing of boundaries, the process by which you know these notions of us and them become more crystallized, how boundaries become more rigidified. But now we were interested with my colleagues to really understanding the transformation of groom boundaries as it happened in micro-interaction in the quotidian relationship between members of dominant and subordinated groups. And at first we thought we wanted to compare cases where the boundaries in societies seem unbridgeable. The case of Israel really stands out there where Arab-Palestinians are constantly in their daily life have to negotiate checkpoints. And uh, on the other hand, we have the case of Brazil, which is often uh, described, it's partly an ideology, as a, a place where group boundaries are very fluid. A level of intermarriage between uh, whites and blacks and browns are very high. Spatial segregation is relatively low. At this first meeting, we also had the Quebecois. I'm a Quebecois. We had the people who worked on blacks in France, on Ireland. When you put together a big project like this, it's really important to have a group that uh, is willing to work hard and because you never know how long it's going to take. When we started, we had no idea it was going to take eight years. So finally, the book came out. And as we started, we had this starting hypothesis, which is a little bit simplistic. We were inspired by the classic book by Albert Hirschman, Exit Voice and Loyalty, with the idea that there's a range of response that one can have when you face uh, racism. You can run away, you can get upset and yell. You can, there's a numbers of ways. We didn't know exactly how people negotiate, and we decided to explore this uh, inductively by having a very simple uh, probe through which we would, you know, uh, ask uh, over 400 respondents in the three countries that we, were, we had decided to study. The question that we asked everyone was, um, have you ever been uh, treated unfairly? Describe to us what happened and how did you respond? So this generated over 700 descriptions of incidents for the United States, over 600 for Brazil, etc. And inductively, we, put, we, we classified these responses to try to understand what those responses were, what the experiences were. And that's essentially what the project that I'm going to talk to you about today uh, does. And we also developed a, you will see, rather complex explanation for accounting for, to, in order to account for what we found. Another set of questions had to do with what we came to call the normative responses. They're not description of things that actually happen, but rather what people believe are the best tools that members of their group have at their disposal to respond to racism. And also questions such as, you know, what do you teach your kids about how to deal with racism? So through these questions, we're trying to capture the scripts, the templates they have in their mind about what should be done. Okay? So we have actual responses and scripts concerning um, what should be done. 
Um, so the original hypothesis was inspired by the famous Sepir-Wolf hypothesis, which is the notion that if you live in an environment where it snows every day, you end up having an extremely extensive vocabulary to talk about snow. Believe me, I talk from experience as a Canadian. Um, and we thought, well, the people who, who experience racism, who live in a context of very rigid group boundaries, will have many more types of responses to racism. Well, this hypothesis quickly vanished as our understanding of the experiences of our respondent became much more complex and um, um, empirically detailed. So before I go on with the PowerPoint, I just want to mention that this, uh, the artwork on the cover is from a uh, Indian um, artist uh, uh, back to care. And what is distinctive here is that you don't see it that well, but you have little dots that represent diversity, but you also have little clouds of gray that connects those dots together, and this represents groupness. And you will quickly see that groupness became a central concept to our book. Basically, you will see that we're comparing five groups. Two of these groups are what we came to describe as strongly bounded groups, groups for which the identity, the belonging to the group is extremely salient. And then we have two other groups that are very weakly bounded. And this becomes a central, very central to our explanation about how sure they are when they're experiencing an incident that it is racism. And this, of course, influences whether they're going to be confronting or not responding or pretending that nothing happened. So the, the incident doesn't exist in and of itself. It's filtered through the environment, including how salient is groupness to this group. The concept of groupness has been around the social sciences for a long time, but we operationalize it in a somewhat unusual way. So the book emerged from uh, this uh, project that uh, Mike uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, which is called the Successful Society Project, which has been uh, going on for 15 years. I've correct directed it with Peter Hall, who has a long association with this uh, August institution. He's been centennial professor at LSE. So for 15 years, our group, which includes political philosopher Will Kimlicka, a whole range of very interesting people, we've been thinking together about what might define successful societies. So of course you have the standard indicators, economic indicators, you also have the indicators that political scientists are often interested in, corruption, good government. There's a whole array of other uh, indicators that have to do with how inclusive societies are, how much, how many, um, how much the members of the group are uh, defined by um, this society as worthy contributors, how extensive it is cultural membership. Okay, how, whether Muslims, if you think about what's happening in the United States now, since November, can think of this as a moment in history where the boundaries, what, who is given, who is recognized as a worthy contributor to society is, is being narrowed progressively. It's very frequently, when Trump talks about Muslim, when he talks about immigrants, he, uh, 
uh, defines them as people who are morally faulty in some ways. And now, since last week, LBGTQ people are forced to use the toilets of the, 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 the sex in which they were born, uh, presuming that if they use other people's toilets, they're going to really do things that are inappropriate. So it really has to do with the symbolic messages that are this, the messages that are given concerning the moral balance of the various members of a society. So we published the first book in 2009 titled Successful Society, which looked at these various dimensions. And in 2013, the second book, Social Resilience in the Neoliberal Era, came out. And the <coughs> getting respect really emerged is in conversation with this project because of this emphasis in the neoliberal era. So the neoliberal era, I'm sure you've all heard more about neoliberalism than you ever wanted to, but what is crucial here is the third aspect of neoliberalism that is emphasized in red here, which has to do with cultural change, which are, have to do with the scripts, the templates of word that gets institutionalized under neoliberalism, which have to do with you know, competitiveness, uh, the pursuit of socioeconomic success, consumption, self-reliance, the privatization of risk. The ideal individual that uh, is valued in this neoliberal era are people who are able to engage in all of these things. And one of the other questions that fed our inquiry from the very beginning is how much is neoliberalism shaping the response of the members of stigmatized groups that we're studying in our three countries, knowing that the U.S. and Israel embraced neoliberalism much more strongly than, Israel, than Brazil did. The U.S. and Israel embraced it more strongly. So the, one of the questions that was also at the center of the book was, you know, uh, how to sustain social resilience, which is very different from individual resilience. So individual resilience, we often think about it as grit. There's a huge wave of popularity in the U.S., the work of Angela Duckworth and others. The question is, who are these, you know, supermen, these people who are able to pull themselves by their britches and get, you know, get out of poverty when no one else can? What are the qualities that allows them to? They look at the responses in the individual traits. We're, we're social scientists, not that psychologists aren't, but in our case, as experts of uh, uh, cultural repertoires and institutions, we asked ourselves specifically what kind of institutions and uh, cultural repertoire will sustain uh, social resilience, which we define as the capacity of groups to face the challenges that come their way. So we look at institutions, whether the welfare state, cultural repertoires, notions such as national myth or neoliberalism or human rights as feeding the capacity of individuals to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. And you will see how crucial this notion of, uh, social, of cultural repertoire become, is in our analysis. So, the, so before I get into the data, just to emphasize, the objective of the book, first of all, is to understand the subjective experience that feeds this allostatic load that uh, epidemiologists write about. They write about the wear and tear that gets under the skin. This is the land of M Michael Marmot and many other epidemiologists who've written about, about such things. So you're probably familiar with it. And which results in huge racial disparities in health that we know about in the U.S. and elsewhere. 
And in a context in the U.S. where something like 75% of white people never have any contact with African Americans, there's a lot of contestation about whether when black people say that they experience racism, whether or not they do. So our goal is also with this book to hope that people will read the book and understand much better what it means on a daily basis to live as a black person in the U.S., and it's also in such, uh, there's this uh, fishbowl effect that Mike mentioned. Huge country, many African Americans think that their experience is unique. To think about African American experience in the U.S. as an experience of stigmatization instead of racism makes a huge difference because it allows us to think about it as a very different kind of phenomenon. And you will see that we're looking here in our book at blacks in three contexts. And... Um, we also developed this crazy explanation of our findings, which has to do with looking at a set of uh, factors that enable and constrains different kinds of responses. So it's a configurational explanation, which is not trendy right now in the social sciences at a time when uh, control experiments are viewed as the solution to everything. Here we are, absolutely Weberian. We engage in Verschti, and it is complicated because reality is complicated. So um, <clears throat> so yes, it is a study of narratives, and it's a study of descriptions of experiences, and we think that it's very important to consider how individuals who are victim of discrimination understand uh, the experiences that they have. Um, this is sometimes dismissed in the literature on the social sciences that is only using audit studies, and you will see very soon why. We think it is important to take their narrative seriously. Now, the big surprise is we have three countries, and we, at the beginning, thought that we were going to study only the main victims of racism in the three countries, African-Americans, black Brazilians, and Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, but then we decided to add to the analysis Ethiopian Jews who live in Israel, who are mostly immigrants, and the reason we add them is that we have black people in the three contexts, and we will see that the experience of blackness is understood very differently in the three contexts. In Israel, there's only 2% of the population that is black. In Brazil, it's 51%. We're looking at the, uh, the Predos and Partos, who are basically blacks and brown, and in the U.S., it's 15%. So not only are the groups that we're considering of different size, but they also have to be, their experience takes different meaning given how diverse the background against which their life unfolds. Uh, Israel is a far less multiracial society than is Brazil or the U.S. So being in this 2% means you really stand out. And we also have two other, two other groups that, uh, I mean, Mizrahi Jews, why do we have them? Well, this is a group that barely thinks itself as a group. In the history of Zionism, Ashkenazi Jews led the construction of Israel, but you also had a lot of uh, immigrants from Iraq and Yemen who came in and who very much perceived the Ashkenazi Jews, the European Jews, as the dominant party that was centrally involved in the creation of Israel. And this group of Mizrahim, which represents uh, roughly 40% of the 
uh, Israeli population, is, perceives itself as centrally, as very integrated in Israeli society, yet, exactly as is the case for black Brazilians, when you look at the statistics and their distrib- distribution in the labor market, they're clearly at the bottom. But they don't think they are, okay? And many of them develop uh, uh, narratives about their life as deeply integrated, and they're very reluctant to describe themselves as discriminated against. Yet they are. So you can see already the puzzle that is emerging. And I'll tell you right away, of these five groups, um, okay, here you have uh, our five groups. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, so we have the Ethiopian the blacks, uh, but phenotypes is not necessarily the most salient uh, element of stigmatization for these Ethiopians because they are Africans, which means that they're perceived as backward and uneducated, and they're immigrants, and they're poor. And they came over the last 30 years, and they're concentrated in small villages. Yet they're Jewish, and they think they belong, and they want to assimilate, and they think that like the very, very large wave of Russian immigrants that came to Israel over the last 30 years, they will assimilate. Okay, so this you already have a hint of what our, one of our main findings would be. These people engage in what my co-authors came to call participatory destigmatization, which is to say we really belong because we're Jewish, and they tend to downplay the experiences of stigmatization that they face. Mizrahim similarly uh, totally buy into the myth of integration through Zionism in the context of strong inequality. So in that sense, it's a weakly bounded group, exactly like black Brazilians. So the, comp- the puzzle of the book becomes more complicated because we have these two weakly bounded groups that live in very different contexts, yet experience themselves somewhat similarly in their respective contexts. And Arab-Palestinians are so deeply stigmatized that they are perceived always as being the allies of Palestinians on the, world, on the West Bank. They cannot do any. They don't even hope to become integrated because they think the, the context they face is just extremely exclusive. And their stigma is not ethno-racial, it's national. So there's a huge literature in the social sciences comparing Brazil and the U.S. One might ask, why do we need one more book on this topic? Most of these books, I could give you the list, Anthony Marx, for instance, are comparative historical books that are very top-down. They take as a point of departure state policy. This is one of the few studies that starts with ordinary people. Okay, so it's a micro-approach. Um, and we also look at differences across classes. So we did over 400 interviews. Our respondents, we, we sent letters. We got a marketing for the U.S. We got a marketing firm to identify for us in the New York suburbs um, cities where you had a high proportion of working class or middle class African Americans. And by middle class, uh, we, it's basically college-educated professional and managers. They don't necessarily have to complete college. Working class is low-status white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, half women, half men. So for the U.S., a sample of uh, 150. And we compare similar, slightly different strategies of, of uh, sampling. I'm not going to get in details. For Rio and Tel Aviv, they're all multi-ethnic cities, Okay. 
And the interviews are conducted by in-group members in the American case, African-American Harvard students. Okay, it's not entirely in-group members because, of course, class differences are important, but racially they are in-group members. And then we spend an enormous amount of time developing a shared coding key. That, here we're talking years. So this is our explanation, and I know you cannot read all of this, but I'm going to come back to many elements here as the talk unfolds. So what are, how are we going to exp explain the outcomes? The first column are the features of the society. So for instance, the fact that you have a very high level of spatial segregation across ethno-racial groups in the U.S., but not in Israel. Uh, the fact that in the U.S. you have extensive legislation to prevent racial discrimination. Some legislation exists in Israel and Brazil as well, but it's not as much implemented. It's not surprising, therefore, that African Americans use the law much more in their responses. The second column are all the cultural repertoires that are salient as they provide their responses. Of course, there's the political ideologies, which I've already mentioned, the national myths, uh, the American dream, Zionism, racial democracy in Brazil. But you also have human rights. You also have at the bottom here neoliberal repertoires, which have to do with competition, etc. And most, one of the very important findings is that if in the environment they have a lot of information about the history of discrimination of their country, they, can, they have much less doubt about the fact that any one incident they're experiencing has to do with racism, and therefore they're much more likely to confront. So in the U.S., this, this, these scripts about the history of, of group disadvantage are extremely present and readily available, and people draw on these tools to make sense of what's happening to them. Not so in Brazil, and I'm going to give you two examples that illustrate this. And it will show you what kind of data. When I say for the U.S., we have over 700 incidents. Here is one. It's a Joe, a middle-class African-American who finds himself alone with several white men in an elevator at work. So he describes what happens as follows. He says, one of them made a joke about blacks and monkeys. I said, man, listen, I ain't into jokes. His demeanor changed, my demeanor changed, all of the positive energy that was in there was being sucked out because of the racial part. I told myself, get out of here, because if I stay in here, I'm going to be in that circle and I won't be able to get out. The stress level rose. My tolerance was getting thin, my blood pressure peaking and my temper rising. By the grace of God, thank you, Jesus, as I stepped off the elevator, there was a black minister walking past. I said to him, can I speak to you for a minute because I just encountered something that I got to talk about because I'm this far from exploding. I had been at the job for a week. This is all, this is all I need to get me fired. Now I'm trying to get through the affair to decide if I should go to the city to complain. So here you see he's telling us his own thinking, right, about deciding how he's going to be responding. Now another case is a case of a beautifully dressed black woman in Rio who, after an evening of a business dinner, goes to her hotel and asks for a key to the, uh, she just mentions the number of her rooms to the, the clerk to get her key. And instead of giving her her key, he takes the phone, calls the room, no one answers, so he winks at her and he says he's not there, obviously thinking she's a prostitute. And she's very upset, but since 
the guy didn't say anything about her being a prostitute, she feels that she cannot confront him. So she's totally distraught, and she goes to her room, and she cries, and she calls her husband, who's white, and she described to him what happened, and the husband says, oh, you're just making too much of it. But when she's asked by our interviewer to describe an incident, this is the incident that she described. So this is an example of how, in the Brazil context, if race is not mentioned, they feel that they cannot make a big deal about it. They cannot denounce And that's very important because this kind of hesitation is very rarely mentioned among African Americans. And the question, when I say that our explanation is about identifying the conditions that enable and constrain different kinds of responses, that's exactly what we're talking about. The fact that that in the American context, these references to racism are very present, mean that African Americans feel much more enabled to, to point to such uh, uh, incidents. So here you can see empowering ideology, black nationalism. It's not that there's no talk about black nationalism in Brazil, but it's less present. And finally, this concept of groupness, to which I will turn. So this concept of groupness, I'm sure you've heard a lot about this. It's a classic in the social sciences, very central to social psychology, us and them, the work of Frederick Barth, the work of Marilyn Brewer, social identity theory. A lot of that literature is basically about self-identification, what's happening in people's head. We think that's important, but we think it's only a little part of what groupness is about. Much more important, or I would say as a complement to that, is also the narratives that are present in people's environment about what, what them are like. In the American context, you have ample anti-white boundaries that are available in the environment in which people can draw. You know, what, how are white people like that African Americans hear about every day? So, um, and also similarly, what are the things that African Americans share amongst them? Which is, you know, first thing we coded very in great detail, the references, and they mostly have to do with shared history of slavery, but also with shared cultures, shared expressive culture, etc. So that's at the level of self-definition. Relative salience of racial versus national boundaries. Racial is more salient than national in the U.S., but not in Brazil. And then the boundaries that they experience through networks. So how frequent uh, you encounter people of different groups in your network. In Brazil, everyone has a black grandmother. At least that's a saying that is often repeated. Not so in the U.S. You have the one-drop rule that is still pretty predominant. So we think of groupness as being multidimensional and situated in time and space. It's not only something that's inside your head, and that makes a huge difference, even for how we think about identity politics. But I don't have time to get into this. So um, we argue in the book so that our five groups have experienced very different kinds of groupness. With African Americans, you have very strong groupness. There's no doubt in the mind of African Americans that they are African Americans, but we say it's contradictory because at the same time, they live in an environment in which universalism is the norm. You're not supposed to say that you only want to be friends with black people. You're supposed to want to be friends with other people as well. So that's why we, de- we say in contradictory because it's in the context of universalism. Black Brazilian, we say it is a blurred sense of groupness because they don't think they, share, uh, they have a shared culture. They think the groupness is mostly based in uh, skin color, which is very different. 
And um, there's quite a bit of criticism addressed toward uh, black movements, although the identity of Negro, which is a political term, which acknowledges the fact that the group is discriminated against, has gained a lot of popularity and is now mostly shared among our respondents. Yeah, they embrace this notion of racial mixture, which says we all have a, you know, we are all of a mixed background, so the, the boundaries of the group are quite uh, blurred. Palestinians, a very strong sense of boundary grounded in their shared national uh, origin identity. Ethiopians and Mizrahim are dissonant and weak for reasons that I've already explained as as Jewish who are at this, Jews who are at the same time excluded and weak because for Mizrahim, they don't view themselves as very differentiated. So the book includes tables like this that compares our groups over all these dimensions to um, explain why we characterize them the way they do, the way we do rather. So now I'm turning to the findings and I'm realizing I'm taking too much time, so I'll go a little bit faster. Um, so one of the main and most important findings, so for each case we have this kind of table. MC is middle class, WC is working class, and this is a table that we produced inductively of all the kinds of incidents that they talk about. And the most important finding, I think, is that mostly what they talk about is not discrimination, but what we came to call assault on dignity. So it's not about not, uh, discrimination is essentially about not having access to housing, education, employment, things you can sue about, okay? They are about resources. This is salient, 72% of our respondents talk about this, but almost all of them talk about assault on dignity, which is things like being ignored, overlooked, underestimated, misunderstood. You know, so this is the really the swear and tear every day. Being insulted is the most frequent one. So many of them say that they've, you know, they've been called the N-word. There's a large literature about the decline of blatant racism in the U.S., but if we believe our respondent is not declining that much. Misunderstood is very high at 53%. And an example of this is this quote here. The guy who is a token, he's the only African-American in his work environment, and he says, I can't say nothing in a meeting without being misunderstood. Every time I say something, it's misunderstood. They don't share your philosophy. They don't share my taste. They just don't understand anything about me. They look at me like I got two heads of some, or something. You know, when you try to make a point, it's really a valid point, but they just don't seem to get it. Also, I'm, all, I'm constantly getting many black issues. Or you get the black comment like, hey, I look pretty good today. I'm dressed like a black guy, right? Any racial biases get tested and directed to you when you're the only one in the workplace. So you can see he's looking for intersubjective confirmation. Someone who will simply say, I understand where you're coming from. I interpret the situation exactly the way you do. But there's never anyone to say that to him. This is a little bit different from what we find in the two other countries. So you can see here 25% of our respondents say that they experience being stereotyped as low status, poor, and uneducated, which is high, but in, the, in Brazil it's half. In Brazil that is the most popular response. And you know, we know that inequality in Brazil is 
greater than in the U.S. In the same, in Rio, you have people who live the way people in the Upper East Side in Manhattan live, but you have others who live like if they were in Lesotho. You know, the, the two extremes of inequality are found in a single city. And there's really this strong association between blackness and poverty. Um, <coughs> Arab-Palestinians, it's a context in which blatant insult are omnipresent, and they're strongly distrusted as enemy. There's no ambiguity there. So therefore, being misunderstood is simply not salient for them. And we're not using the term microaggression because a lot of what they talk about is not aggression. Being ignored, you walk in, let's say, the teacher's room in the morning and no one says hi to you. It's not aggression. It's simply being ignored, okay? So that's why we resist using that term. Uh, um, that that uh, term. Ethiopian Jews, as I said, culturally backward and educated, primitive, uh, there being African here, is really connected to the use of cultural stereotypes. And the Mizrahi is a little bit like women in the 60s who said, you know, oh, I behave in such a way that I'm never victim of sexism because I'm not a ninny or something. Well, you have a lot of Mizrahi who say exactly the same, you know. I personally never express... Um, uh, you know, stigmatization from the Ashkenazi elite. So they typically describe it as a thing of the past, something that happened to people they know but not to them. Or sometimes they will talk about it as coming from their father-in-law inside the family circle. So uh, when it comes to responses, again, we produce this kind of table inductively, and uh, we knew that confrontation was going to be very salient, but we had no idea that it was going to be almost twice more salient in the U.S. than any other response. And you can see that uh, suing is very high for African Americans, much higher than for the other groups. The second category, management of the self, emerged quickly as extremely salient to the analysis. It's all this thinking. I don't want to be the angry black woman again today. I don't want to be upset every day. I want to be viewed as a successful lawyer, so therefore I'll shut up and do my work. And this, together with no response, uh, are the second and third most important uh, responses, and this consumes an enormous amount of time and energy. And no responses, I was so startled, I simply didn't see anything. Or I was in the restaurant, I wanted to eat. Instead of picking up a fight, I decided I wanted to eat. So really this wear and tear, you know, very, very, and then you have a competence and work, which was our neoliberal response, and we were surprised to see that it was not that high when it came to responses to incident, actual incident, but it's very high when it comes to normative responses, to what they tell their kids. They think that African Americans should just pull their, get their act together and stop denouncing, denouncing racism and slavery and, you know, get on with it. So, uh, example of confronting, this is a woman who says, you know, I'm waiting in line, you have this white woman who comes, and she cuts me, and I put up my foot to trip her because I'm really pissed. And she says, you know, they do that all the time. They cut you. They're just trying to be superior. So I say to them, you know better than this. You're not telling me you know that you're not doing that because I'm black. You're actually doing that because you're white. So she's talking about white privilege. Because my being black has nothing to do with you. And you know, of course, it comes as a shock to them. The lady who cut in front of me never said a word. They don't want to have, be confront to have a confrontation. And if you're confronting them, they're not going to give a word back to you because you're not there. You understand? So I don't think she's going to do that to many more black women. 
<coughs> but their response is always you got to confront. You cannot let it go. But at the same time, they don't always do this because they know that there's a price to confronting. So there's a whole calculation, pragmatic calculation about the um, cost of confronting. And that's where the management of the self comes in. With this woman says, typically I just go somewhere and calm myself down because my first instinct is to curse somebody out. But I have to breathe, take it easy, bring it back, calm down. And then I usually don't go to them directly. I usually go to talk it out with somebody else and say, look, hear me out. This is what happened. What do you think? Am I wrong? So they're engaging in intersubjective exchange to test whether their interpretation of the situation is correct. Enormously time-consuming and energy-consuming. The responses in Brazil and Israel are different in that a black Brazilian, uh, in the case of black Brazilian, no response, management, and confrontation are equally salient. And we saw that in the U.S. It's quite different. And they spend a lot of time talking about educating the ignorant, which is a patient thing. You know, you have to understand that not everyone knows how black people are about, and you have to explain to them. So in the Brazil context, my co-authors say there's a huge emphasis put on civility and on the notion that if you're always talking about race, you're viewed as someone who's quite rude. So therefore, you cannot just jump on people. You really have to talk things through. And people spend a lot of time managing relationships to avoid confrontation, which is present in the U.S. too, but probably not as much. Arab Palestinians very often ignore because they think there's nothing to be done. They don't expect acceptance from, you know, uh, Jews. They just think, okay, that's what we have to put up with, and they have no hope to be understood. But they use this language of universal justice and human rights to get some people to intercede for them. Ethiopian Jews, highly assimilationist, focus on management of the self, as are the Mizrahi Jews with a focus on meritocratic and individualist responses. So the quest for upward mobility is very central. So um, I should say that for the uh, African-American, I mentioned that the focus on um, individual responses when it comes to actual incidents is startling, especially when we think that uh, the normative responses, well, I'm going to start over the sentence. Normative, sen normative responses are to um, engage in hard work and demonstrate your value by being upwardly mobile. Uh, this is a dominant response among African Americans. These interviews are conducted in 2007, 2008. We are writing these results for the first time around 2013 before Black Lives Matter explodes. So we are, of course, very puzzled by this result. But at the same time, I remember very well writing them and thinking, yes, it's true, the civil rights movement is totally gone. <coughs> so it felt a little bit like it was a subterranean force, and we're still puzzling. I think, you know, when you look at the results of who is involved in Black Lives Matter, a lot of them are college students, very large proportion of LBTQ groups for whom uh, recognition is the goal. So uh, lots of identity politics, claims of recognition. They are not the same people that we talk to. At the same time, the people we talk to are probably very sympathetic, but their own 
And that came up in the interviews. They think that constantly denouncing slavery creates reverse racism. And they have experienced it at work time and time again. That you cannot simply constantly talk about racism because then white people you work with end up feeling that they are being victimized by you. So these are, this is part of the background of you know, what they're experiencing. So the explanation for findings really have to do with the role of groupness in shaping the responses, which influences the degree of hesitation in labeling an, ex an incident as racist. And this hesitation is far greater in Brazil than it is in the US. And then you have these repertoires and scripts on which people can draw to, make a, to, to shape their response. So the fact that racial mixture in Brazil uh, leads them to really try to, a norm of racial mixture means that you should not be confronting in Brazil. And Zionism feeds for our Israeli respondent uh, this notion that as Jews they are, they can expect to become part of the, the Jewish melting pot even if they are belonging to a stigmatized group. Now, of course, as we were doing the end, as we were finishing the book, there were movements, um, uh, Ethiopian Jews were mobilizing in, in Jerusalem denouncing racism and piggybacking on, on Black Lives Matter. So you have uh, transnational human rights repertoires that are also traveling. So our analysis is not incompatible with this. What we're saying is this is the people we talk to for them. These things were not very salient, but these are often the literature puts a great deal of emphasis on social movement activists. Well, there's a paper that came out last year in the American Sociological Review that shows that only 7% of the non-college educated in the U.S. ever participate in a social movement. So often far too much weight is put on the activities of the social movements. So that's partly it's one of the corrective that we're trying to bring to the literature through our uh, analysis. So... Some of the other conclusions of the book, phenotype is not necessarily the primary organizing principle of exclusion. We saw, especially the case of Arab-Palestinians, where national belonging is crucial, and that we have to look at the position of the group in relation to the polity. I didn't tell you that much about Arab-Palestinians, but, you know, I mean, they are citizens, but they cannot serve in the army and the army is the most important institution for social integration in Israel. There's a separate um, educational system for them, which they want, except that they're not the ones who are managing that system. And it's largely viewed as a substandard system. So there's, this is only two of the many ways through which they are in a marginal position in the, in the Jewish polity, and everyone acknowledges it. So um, I think I'll simply skip this since I've been talking for so long. So what does this leave us? Well, it's a complicated story, and uh, you know the the explanatory framework that we have is really one that points to we draw on this book by Mahoney and Thielen, which is a response by political scientists to the current turn in their disciplines toward using. Um, uh, controlled experiments, and they are reclaiming the uh, 
the Weberian tradition. And it's, it's very much what we're doing here, saying yes, it's a multi-causal analysis that takes into consideration many dimensions of the context and the tools, the cultural tools on which people will draw to make sense of their environment. And, um, you know, we cannot, as we were finishing the book, some people were urging us to draw a conclusion about if you're, you know, what country is least racist? You know, where should you want to live if you belong to one of these stigmatized groups? And our response was, this is a bad question because racism does not exist objectively in these countries. It's the same incident can be responded to through humor in Brazil, whereas in the U.S. it will start a major fight. So to understand what stigmatization is about, you really have to take seriously the subjective experience of the victim. And um, on the other hand, we can certainly say that societies put in place tools that go back to the social resilience team that enable people to respond more or less so that they don't feel isolated and they don't feel that it's all on themselves. So, for instance, um, we can think about uh, how to engineer uh, policies or uh, public messaging in such ways that we proclaim uh, that the society in which we live is more or less, you know, promoting of diversity. So public awareness campaign that address stigmatization. I remember once coming out of the subway in San Francisco and seeing this huge rainbow flag saying, you know, we're a queer nation. I was thinking, yes, if you're gay, that's where you want to live. You know, there's no ambiguity that you fully belong. And this paper by Wright and Blumrad, I like to mention it because it's a paper that uses the multi-cultural um, index developed by Will Kimlicka, uh, which m compares countries in terms of how much they have policies that facilitates the integration of immigrants, uh, English as second language, etc. And it shows that the higher countries rate on this index, the more their immigrants are emotionally and cognitively engaged with their whole society, and the more likely they are to want to run for political office with Canada and Australia coming at the very top. So these things can actually be engineered. If you adopt a bunch of, of policies, as Trump is in the process of doing now, that sends clear message that are exclusive, well, you end up with a population that is extremely disengaged. So we need to think more systematically about uh, how policies and cultural messaging can influence um, creating societies that are more inclusive. And I'll conclude with this slide here, which is really about theories of inequality. The book was also fed by a desire to connect, uh, you know, we can think of inequality as having to do by, with distribution. So the book by Thomas Piketty, uh, Capital, was all about distribution, the rich getting richer, etc. The other coin, the other side of the coin, what inequality is about is recognition. And you have some very important philosophical essays, the work of Nancy Fraser and Axel Honnet, that have really given us important tools to think about this. But the sociological analysis of misrecognition of recognition is in its infancy. So I think the agenda for sociology of for social science approach to inequality that would be uh, more accurate requires, I think, developing a sociology of recognition and then connecting it more systematically with inequality, with distribution outcome. So that's the broader agenda that is behind this project. And it's kind of captured here. 
by thinking about there's various processes that feed into inequality. Most of our energy, especially when it comes to economics and quantitative sociology, has been focused on, you know, growing poverty, the 1%, et cetera, distribution pattern. But we need to think about mechanisms. So Marx and Weber wrote about domination, exploitation, your own frank, um, I mean, closure. We need to broaden it to think about uh, other dynamics and the type through process that you have here at the bottom is really, I think, the kind, the part of inequality that I've been trying to address. So thank you very much. Susanna Jean? Yeah. Okay, thank you. We, uh, thanks very much. We have nearly half an hour for questions and comments, and I think there should be some roving mics. Um, so who would like to start? There's one over, one over here. <coughs> My name is Atar Hussain from the London School of Economics, and I wanted to raise questions about the various ways of defining <coughs> groups. The various what? Ways, uh, the various practices define the group. One is really what is called categorical differentiation, and it could be legally based. For example, uh, you know, being classified as Palestinian is a categorical uh, identification, <coughs> actually, which is also founded in law. Then there are much more sort of uh, vague kind of which, which don't have that clear category, but <coughs> nonetheless, sort of because of uh, social practice, they, they actually are identified as a group. So what I wanted to raise is the difference between uh, you know, discrimination and feeling of discrimination depending on the way identity is defined. <laughs> should, should we get a few questions? Sure. Yeah, and then, so give you a chance to get some, get your breath. <coughs> well, okay. yeah. Sorry. Hi. Good evening. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for this really interesting presentation. My name is Barbara Delvo. I'm a visiting researcher at Middlesex University, and I was really interested in knowing more about the the class as an explanatory factor in the analysis you made. And my second question would be, why didn't you, uh, in your survey, also include, <coughs> sorry, I have a call too, mm -hmm. uh, people from upper classes? Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Do we have a third question now? Um, okay, Michelle, you want to, okay. to answer those two? Um, well, I didn't have time to talk about the results. Um, the proposal that funded the project had 150 hypotheses about class differences, which basically had to do with uh, the middle class confronting much more readily because of their greater resources. What we found in the U.S. is that class differences are small and um, much, much smaller than what we had expected, which is in line with the literature on African-Americans, which describes race as the master identity for that group. Um, and when you find them, they mostly have to do, I'll show you. So, 
So you can see that uh, middle class are twice as likely almost as working class to perceive themselves as uh, stereotyped as poor. And the, it's very interesting. We find that they often think that having a college degree should protect them from racism, and they're very shocked that it doesn't. So there's a lot of energy being put into uh, signaling that status in dress and in presentation of self. And we have statements saying, like, although I have a college degree, nevertheless, I am victim of. So it... <coughs> It suggests a lot of assumptions about, you know, is racism acceptable for the poor? It's complicated. I don't have time to get into it. The, uh, where the um, working class uh, is, has uh, experiences that are more frequent than the middle class is being misunderstood, as you can see, but also experiencing double standards. And this we attribute to the fact that they are... Um, uh, they have much less autonomy at work than the middle class. So um, we didn't, in, in Brazil, on the other hand, the class differences are much greater than they are in the American case. And um, so those are among the findings. We did not include the upper class because, frankly, this is already too much. You know, we have, we compare cohorts, age cohorts, people who were born before and after the civil rights movement. We find that those who were born before uh, used the law much more. So uh, the, upper, the upper class is also very hard to find. It's very difficult to conduct research on the upper class. You cannot find them randomly. So, And um, the first question, I'm not sure I understood it, to tell you the truth, because a lot of my analysis is about perception of categories. But maybe we can talk afterward. Okay, some more questions. There's one in the green shirt. I have two questions. One, the first was I've got some cough drops. If I throw them up on the stage, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Ah, sorry. It's good. I have some. Thank you. <laughs> you feel for me, huh? <laughs> and um, and the second has has this sort of study been done with people with disabilities? Okay. Shall we have a couple more questions? If there's one, just whatever. One of us, one there. Um, hi, I'm doing my PhD at UCL, and I have two questions. Uh, one is, uh, you have been mentioned uh, your research objective is to observe uh, neoliberalism, how neoliberalism shaped the um, <coughs> cultural membership. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this? And another question is, uh, you talk about the institution and the cultural repertoires. Yeah, but I think the culture, you, you focus more the cultural repertoires than the institution influ uh, impact on the facilitation of inclusion and exclusion. So, yeah, can you explain more about the institution? Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure I understood your first question. Um, oh, I mean, the, because uh, I saw so, uh, the slide you say uh, you want uh, you want to talk about it, how neoliberalism shaped the cultural membership? <coughs> okay. One more? Oh, there's one over here. Yeah. Hi, hello. Thank you for that. That was really, really interesting. Um, I just had a question about generational differences. Did you account for whether someone was a first-generation migrant 
whether they were the child of a migrant, and if so, the differences that might have made in their perceptions of discrimination. Um, was it? Okay, well, there's no migrants in the study but for the Ethiopians. So all the black, uh, the African Americans and the Brazilians are, are uh, born in the country. So we don't look into that. I mean, there's a literature on um, how migrants draw boundaries toward blacks in the U.S. that could lead us to draw hypotheses about them really emphasizing hard work and the work of my colleague Mary Waters, for instance. Um, there's a large literature on disability and stigma, nothing like that. One of my co-author, actually, Nisim Mizrahi, does a lot of work on, on disability as well. It tends to be a literature that is more psychological. It's complicated because stigma is a topic that has largely been owned by psychologists. The sociologists who've worked on it, like Bernice, uh, Bernice Pesco-Salido and uh, Bruce Link and Joe Phelan, are very much in conversation with the psychology literature by talking about groupness at the level of uh, spatial segregation and um, intermarriage and the cultural scripts. We're bringing in dimensions that have never been there before. And the book, the reviews have not been out yet. It will be interesting to see how it is, uh, what are the reactions. So... Um, Cultural membership and neoliberalism, I'll just give you one example, which is from um, <coughs> my 2000 book, The Dignity of Working Man, argued that in the French context, uh, based on interviews with low-status white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, uh, boundaries of membership in the French context, based on interviews conducted in 93, would be characterized by strong boundaries toward Muslims, unsurprisingly, as violating many of the basic rules of, of French society about assimilation, human rights, um, not taking uh, advantage of the welfare state. You know, the, the workers I interviewed felt that Muslims were just getting more than their right share of uh, welfare resources. Um, but also very weak boundaries toward blacks and toward the poor. Because in that context, they were still evoking a language of solidarity toward the poor. And blacks were, you know, the French republicanisms tell us that race doesn't matter very much. When, we did, when I did these interviews in the early 90s, it was still the case. A lot of workers I talked to would say race doesn't matter. Now with a colleague, Nicolas Duvoux, 20 years later, we do a review of that literature and we found that the boundaries have totally changed in that you know, in those 20 years, with Muslims, of course, remain very salient even more. Blacks are now very salient, in part because blacks and Muslims are now considered as being a single category, since in so many West African immigrants who have moved to France, it's not only the residents of the dum-tum, which were more predominant in the early 90s, and the poor are now deeply stigmatized. And my co-author, Nicolas Duvoux, has written a lot he has a book titled uh, L'Autonomie des Assistés, which is about how people who receive welfare in France are now being asked to be self-reliant and how much that has changed over the last decades. So that his study would be a perfect example of the role of institutions in providing implicit or explicit messages about the rules that one needs to follow in order to be perceived as a worthy member of the society. So what... 
follows, I think, would be that one could look at all redistributive, you know, policies, you know, about what are the messages that they send to the poor about who belongs, for instance, and uh, what are the rules of collective living. And typically, policies are adopted based on whether or not they're likely to be efficient when it comes to, you know, housing or discrimination or whatever, but they are not read in cultural terms and, you know, what are the unintended consequences of adopting a policy, for instance, such as food stamps, which does not exist per se anymore, but, you know, you had poor people waiting in line to, with their stamps to buy food, which was an extremely visible stigma. So, um, Can I ask a question? Oh, no, uh, Nikki was first, yeah? <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Nikki Lacey. Thank you very much for your, for your lecture. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by and very struck by your characterization of the distinctiveness of the American case. And um, it's something that David and I have been working on together. And I just wondered if I could ask you about a sort of legal criteria, and I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I wonder if you, you have any thoughts about how far what Robert Kagan's called the sort of cultural and institutional structure of adversarial legalism in the States is, is a cousin of this, uh, you know, willingness to confront, even to litigate, which is, is a very fascinating thing because we know that actually confrontation and your subjects knew that confrontation, let alone litigation, can be deeply counterproductive. But is there something, is there a broader feature of American culture and institutional structure that is at work there. Mm-hmm. David, yeah, pass on. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for a, such an interesting and thought-provoking talk. Um, I, was, I wanted to really ask you about residential segregation and the role which that played, so that if you, for instance, were to look at Afro-Caribbeans in this country in comparison to Afro-Americans, we know the degree of residential segregation is very much less in this country than it is in the, in the United States. And I wondered to what extent that might affect the way in which people saw assaults on dignity or experienced them and so on. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask my question? And then, uh, sure. um, just about, I mean, it's the issue of interviewing because the topics you're talking about are very sensitive topics and um, some people will find it difficult to talk about them and I was kind of wondering about the role of interview, interview effect and did you have <coughs> black interviewers interviewing Afro-Americans? Did that make a difference to what you found? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, the interviewers, I'm just going to talk about the US case. They were middle-class women who were Harvard graduate students. So typically the, uh, the respondents were extremely welcoming to them and the interview would start by them being told by the respondents how proud they were that they were doing so well and that as African-American women they were now at Harvard. So there was a real element of, you know, expression of uh, support for these young women who had been, who were so accomplished. But at the same time the universality of knowing what it is like to be black living in the U.S. would often, you know, be a very deep, and you can see it when you read the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the transcripts. The, the book is organized, since we had so much data, 
And if you read the book, you will see, you know, one big U.S. chapter, one big Brazil chapter, one big Israel chapter. It's very hard to have one book with so much data in it. We did not, and we use snippets of interviews all the way, but we don't have the portraits of individuals, and each interview was followed by, you know, long field notes, and none of that has been exploited yet. So I think there's a lot that could be done with this, and we will see who's going to do it, because the book took so long to finish right now, none of us want to look at any of it again. So... um, Um, The question about legalism, um, so much I think about, we got wonderful comments from a colleague named Ron Levy who uses Susan Silby's work on narratives about law on paper and law in practice. And a lot of his comments had to do with the degree of legal cynicism that our respondents uh, experience. And in general, they are, um, you know, to the extent that we can see, they don't expect anything to work in their favor ever. And yet, they do say that I go to the union to complain. Those who have unionized jobs talk a lot about how they will mobilize these tools. Unlike the Brazil and Israel case, where frankly, none of it is activated. The laws are there, but they really are not activated. And yet I was learning uh, through Ron that the number of lawyer per capita in Israel has grown enormously in the last decade. So I don't know if things are going to be changing. But uh, I think that a lot uh, there's in the background of a lot of their responses assumptions about the many ways in which the law doesn't do its job at all. And they have to take the case in their hands. Um, David's question about racial segregation of blacks in uh, the U.S. versus the U.K., I just don't know that much. My understanding is racial intermarriage is much higher here, right? And that the uh, the segregation is far more class-based than race-based. So um, I just don't know enough to tell you more. Okay, we got, I think we've got time for one more round of questions. And we've got oh, people put their hands up now. Judy in the front here first. <laughs> Um, Hello, I'm Judy Wiseman, and I so, so enjoyed the talk. And I have to say, I meant to send Mike a note um, telling him to mention that it's International Women's Day, but I forgot. Yes. Um, But as it is... I'm um, sorry not to be on strike. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, we're supposed to be wearing red. Yeah. um, Yeah. Actually, but I was just um, thinking... I've much more worked on gender over my lifetime, and I was thinking about the parallels with gender as you were sort of going through and that you were seamlessly mentioning comments from you know, black women and black men and um, things. And you said at the outset that you were absolutely sort of centrally interested in intersectionality. And I guess I was quite um, Mm -hmm. struck by your answer to one of the other questions, which was more or less, if I can put it crudely, that that race trumped class in, you know, that you'd expected more differences. And I just wondered in that context if you could just say a little bit about gender differences and what you, you found... Yeah. In, in relation to that. Thank okay. you very much. Absolutely. Okay, guys, some more. There's one over here. Yeah. Yes, my issue is um, what you mentioned earlier in terms of knowledge, power, and diversity and public awareness campaigns in terms of what's to be done policy-wise or otherwise. In your experience, on the question of ex- uh, the principles of exclusion for either side of USA, Brazil, and Israel mentioned. Do you think 
uh, in comparison with what we consider to be Western ideology and civilization, it has been hardly empowering for either US, Brazil, or Israel. Can exclusion and contradictions ever be an acceptable formula for either? An acceptable form of? Or for either the contradictions within US, Brazil, or Israel. Okay, there's one. Uh, oh, two, there's two more, yeah. One more with the green hair, if I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. Um, hi, I'm Sam, and I'm an anthropology student. And I was just wondering, I'm not sure if this is related, but could social memories have possibly been a factor as to how people would uh, perceive and respond to stigmatism? Social yeah. memory? Could social memories have been a factor to how sure. people respond to it? And um, there's one here, and then we'll have some questions. Can you just um, thank you for a for a really interesting talk. Um, you mentioned about uh, the way you had conceptualized groupness as situated in time and space, um, uh, that it had implications for how we think about identity politics. And you said you didn't have time to get into it, but I was hoping you would get into it a little bit. Yeah. I think one last question at the front here. Hello, my name is Dita Anderson. I do research um, on um, socially excluded groups in Denmark, and I was wondering whether whether there whether you whether the, there can be a dilemma in that in some sort of institutional context, distribution of resources is linked to what you traditionally would consider stigmatized group. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, I do that. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess in <coughs> the way Bourdieu would have thought about distribution of resources would be distribution of capital, and he would think of symbolic capital as one such resources, resource rather, and he wrote a lot about accumulation of forms of capital. Um, symbolic capital essentially for him has to do with legitimacy. So I have to think about how he would conceptualize it. I've never thought through that, but it's a good question. We have to talk about that. Huh? Okay. okay. Um, the question about uh, memory. Yes, my three-part table, the middle, cultural repertoire included the availability of shared repertoire about the history of the group. So that's absolutely central. So for African-Americans, you know, many of them talked about how their family moved from the South to escape Jim Crow. And the salience of it being a racist society in its history is just extremely salient in their mind. They talk about it all the time. Um, not so in Brazil. I mean, Brazil had a much greater slave population in the U.S., and yet uh, the dominant discourse about it is not as salient in everyday life. So I'm not the Brazil expert, but you might want to read that chapter. <laughs> um, identity politics. Um, a lot of the writings... Oh, yeah, let me talk about gender first. It's easier. Um, 
So the book, basically for the U.S. and Brazil, there's a section where we talk about class and gender and age cohort differences. The main differences are that, well, first, when you code, we coded all the data to see how race was salient in contrast to class and gender for the U.S. I know we did it for the U.S. And very, very few people mentioned class, something like 10%. And for, for gender, it's 5%. So they, said, they receive a letter that says, we want to talk to you about, and they know that we're approaching it in the U.S. as African Americans. Uh, your experience choosing your friends, uh, your life, etc. It's not about racism. And when we start the interview, can you describe to us a, um, a, an experience where you feel you were treated unfairly? Very, very few of them mention gender. Gender comes mostly when they talk about um, uh, lessons taught to children. So they talk a lot about how they want to make their sh- sure, make, they want to make sure their, their sons are safe. So teaching, the way they teach racism, about racism to their children is highly gendered. And then uh, physical assault and be viewed as threatening, stereotyped as threatening, that's also much more um, salient among men. In general, men have more, mentioned more incidents than women, which is not surprising. In Brazil, you also have women who feel that they are stereotyped as domestics or prostitutes. And that's not very salient in the U.S., certainly not prostitutes. So it's there, but not usually salient, you know. Um, so intersectionality actually is not that salient in the book. We, it's studied empirically, and I think we make a, a real contribution to the extent that, I, and you would know much better than I do, but a lot of the literature on intersectionality posits that it is very salient all the time. And what we find is that it's not. So it allows us to have a much more qualified answer in terms of how much is it salient for whom. And that, in fact, race, in the American case, is far more salient than class. Um, Identity politics, I would say that it came to sociology uh, through post-structuralism and Lyotard and, you know, even Nancy Fraser. And a lot of it was the idea that um, claims about gender and race were now uh, displacing claims about class, which were a much more serious basis of domination. And I think there was also a notion that, similarly to what I just said about intersectionality, these different aspects of identity were um, not grounded in groupness at all, that they were in your head. So Lyotard and the post-structuralists would tell us, you know, you can reinvent yourself and you every day. Identities are fluid and fungible. So if you look at groupness through uh, the networks through which people live, and not only the, net, the networks, but also the cultural scripts that are available in their group about how people are different from other groups, um, you quickly really move away from a conception of identity that is psychological. And I think there's a lot more to develop there, but we haven't done it yet. But it's certainly something that I want to do. And it has to articulate also the relationship between symbolic and social boundaries, and I don't think that has been done. I mean, here in the UK, you have the work of uh, 
you know, social identity theory, which has been mass, Tashfell and Turner, massively influential. And many sociologists have borrowed it. But it doesn't have any culture in it. And in a sense, it has the meaning associated with groups is not fully developed. And I have, I talked yesterday in the inequality uh, program about my uh, paper that I'm now finishing with graduate students, which is a critique of uh, implicit association tests and um, these approaches to racism that are very intracranial. So I'm ready to do a, an assault against the intracranial, you know, uh, to really think about these experiences as multidimensional. So those are things that I'm now working on. Okay, I think we should call a halt. I think we should thank uh, Michelle again. And also congratulate Michelle on winning the Erasmus Prize, which is a fantastic achievement. <laughs>